0: well you 're probably wondering why it is that I have a coffee pot on the on the platform today, and the answer is because i didn 't get my coffee this morning and I just needed some to get through the message and you might need some to get through the message as well i 'm kidding that 's not really the reason. Um, the reason I brought this today is because I wanted to illustrate something to you, and I just need to be honest and tell you if you if you know, you know right, and if you don 't know, then you just don 't get it but but I think a lot of you will agree with me that coffee is one of the simple pleasures of life. If you agree, would you say amen? amen. It is. It's just, it's just wonderful. I'm going to send this away because it will be a distraction the whole service, although I'm going to keep the cup. Thank you, James. I appreciate that. I am so committed to coffee. That I go through a routine that probably most of you who are coffee drinkers do the same thing that I do. And it happens every night before I go to bed. I prepare for my time with coffee the next morning. right? So I, I grind the beans and I put them in the pot and I pour the water in. And sometimes I'll set the timer Um, unless I know it's a morning, I might want to roll over and hit the snooze button, and so I won't set the timer because I don't want it to get overcooked before I get to it. If I don't set the timer, I have to just push a button when I get up. I just stumble to the coffee pot and just do that. And within just a few minutes, I am holding one of the treasures on this earth. It is a piping hot cup of coffee, and I do what you do. I, I go to my chair, I go to my recliner, or I go to my desk in my office, or I go to the couch, and I, and I don't just drink it. You know, nobody who really understands this just drinks the coffee. You sort of nurse the coffee. <laughs> Are you with me? You smell its aroma, and you sip it. It's so good. You want some right now, don't you? <laughs> and I sit and I sip. And I enjoy my morning coffee. Now imagine that exact same scene. But imagine for a moment if every morning I poured myself, not a cup of coffee, but what if I poured myself a cup of poison? And every morning I smelled its aroma and I sipped on my poison. Harboring unforgiveness is like sipping on a hot cup of poison. It might feel really good in the moment. It might be incredibly comforting. It might taste very appropriate, but it will surely destroy you from the inside out. You know, the Bible warns us about this kind of poison in our lives. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter number 12 warned us this way about poison that can come into our life or our family life or into our church even when he said this. He said, strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no man will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness or no poisonous root would have the opportunity to spring up and to cause trouble in your life or trouble in your family or trouble in your marriage or trouble in your church. Be careful that this poisonous root does not spring up and by it many people become defiled. He warned us about the poison, this poisonous root that could defile our lives. and I'm absolutely convinced that Unforgiveness is one of the primary sources of poison in the lives of believers. In fact, I believe that there are far too many Christians, and let's just say it honestly, in all likelihood, far too many of us in this room today who have a persistent pattern of disobedience to God's clear commands, when it comes to the issue of forgiveness. That we live with this perpetual kind of defiance and we compartmentalize it. We try not to let it affect the rest of our lives, but we we compartmentalize it and there's this place where we are living in defiance of the commands of God to us as his children as it relates to forgiveness. And let's be honest, these commands are not vague or obscure or hard to understand. They are crystal clear that we are to forgive. In fact, I want you to do something with me. It's not uncommon to recite the Lord's Prayer out together. So I want you to do that. I'm not going to make you do it from memory. We'll put it on the screen. But I want you to read this out loud with me. Let's say it. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we'll just stop right there. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us of our debts, forgive us of our sins as we will forgive those who are indebted to us, as we will forgive those who have sinned against us. And it might be interesting to you that Jesus would use this terminology of indebtedness, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But this is, in fact, exactly what the word forgive means. The idea of forgiveness means to forgive or to let go of a debt, It means to release or to set free from an obligation as in a debt being canceled and you no longer have to repay it. Jesus said, when you pray, here's the model prayer. You are to say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us or forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Paul said it this way, Ephesians 4 And verse 32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Again, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13 says, bear with one another and forgive any complaint you may have against someone else. Forgive them in the same way the Lord has forgiven you. Forgive them as the Lord forgave you. So the model prayer makes it clear. The commands of Paul make it clear. If that's not clear enough, let me share with you a parable that Jesus uh, delivered as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter number 18, beginning in verse 23. I'll read it. You don't have to turn unless you just like to. but, But Matthew chapter 18, verse 23, records the parable of the unforgiving servant. Here's what Jesus said. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon with them, uh, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. And this would be 10,000 talents of silver or 10,000 talents of gold. But in either case, it was an immeasurably high amount of money. Suffice it to say, he would never repay this debt in a hundred lifetimes. It was impossible. For him to repay it. Verse number 25 says, Because he could not repay it, his Lord commanded him to be sold with his wife and his children and everything that he had in order for payment to be made. And the servant therefore uh, fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will repay thee all. And the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion. And so he loosed him and he forgave him of the debt. But that same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred pence, a minuscule amount of money, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And he would not listen, but he went and cast him into prison until he should pay the debt. Verse 32 says that when his master heard this, he said, Oh, you wicked servant, I forgave you all of your debt because you asked me, should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant And as I had pity on you? The point of the parable is obvious, isn't it? Jesus is telling us this story to say to us if we have experienced the immeasurable pardon of almighty God if we've been forgiven of so much sin against our God then we should be willing with the same grace that we've received to extend that grace to others that if we've been forgiven we should be willing to forgive others and In fact, the warning is given in this parable that if we are unwilling to forgive, it is a warning sign, a danger sign of the condition of our own heart. The point is, Jesus taught, Jesus modeled, Jesus taught us to pray, Paul taught it, and throughout the scriptures we are commanded to forgive, to forgive others. Now, when the offenses against us are slight, you know, a A cross word, a a small broken promise, something like that. When the offenses are slight offenses, forgiveness is not that tough. It's no big deal. It typically happens pretty quickly and we get on with life and it's all okay. But sometimes the offenses are not slight. Sometimes the ways in which we have been hurt or offended or wronged or betrayed or abused, sometimes the offenses are grave. And when those offenses or when those wrongs are serious, grave, sometimes life-changing offenses, then the command to forgive is no less imposed upon us. But we would all admit that it's more difficult. And in fact, we would say it's maybe the hardest thing we've ever been commanded to do. And it is, in fact, something for which we desperately need to trust in the grace of God. Now I think all of you would agree with me that as we've been studying the life of Joseph and we've seen what his brothers have done to him, we would all agree that, that what happened to Joseph was not a small thing. And that the sins that his brothers committed against him were not slight offenses at all. Turn back to chapter 37 just as a reminder of the things that they had done. Genesis 37 in verse number 4 The Bible says that his brothers hated him. And because they hated him so they could not speak peaceably unto him, there was was a a verbal conflict. They they had constant tension in the home. Verse number 8 says their hatred for him grew and grew. Verse number 18 tells us that they conspired against him to kill him. Verse number 23 tells us they stripped him of his coat of many colors, which was much more than taking a special garment and tearing it up. It was their way of destroying what signified his place in the family, literally removing him, eliminating him from their their family life. Verse 24 says they cast him headlong into a pit. Verse 28 says they sold him as a slave And verse number 31 says that they left him for dead. Now, would you agree with me? These are not slight offenses. This is a horrible sequence of evil perpetrated against Joseph by his brothers. All of that recorded in chapter 37 when Joseph is a 17-year-old boy. And in our text today in chapter number 42, these same 10 brothers, 20 years later are going to come down to Egypt to buy some food and they are going to come face to face with Joseph. Face to face with the one that they had harmed so horribly. Let's read about it in our text, chapter number 42, beginning in verse number 5. I'm in Genesis 42 and verse number 5. The Bible says, And the sons of Israel, that's the sons of Jacob, the ten brothers of Joseph, the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came. For the famine had reached into the land of Canaan, and Joseph was the governor over the land of Egypt. And he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came, and they bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers, and he knew them. He recognized them. But he disguised himself to them. He made his voice to be different. The Bible says that he spoke roughly, verse 7, harshly unto them. And he said unto them, where have you come from? And they said, we've come from the land of Canaan to buy food, verse number 8. And Joseph knew his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. Now, i often said to you, when you read the Bible, don't just read black letters on white pages, but wear the skin of the people in the text. Kind of immerse yourself in the text to really understand what's happening. And I want you to do that in Joseph's place today. Can you imagine what Joseph must have been feeling? The last time he saw these 10 guys, they were counting their silver that they had gotten for his life where they just sold him to be a slave. They'd left him for dead, and now 20 years later, he's sitting adjudicating all of these people coming with their requests for grain, and he must have seen in the background, in the line, these 10 coming. He immediately knew who they were. He recognized them, and can you imagine the emotion he must have been feeling as suddenly he's face to face with these 10 brothers? Maybe some of us don't have to imagine. Maybe you've had an experience similar to this, or maybe you're having it now where the person or the people who have betrayed you or harmed you or hurt you, you have to be face-to-face with them. And it's, a, it's an emotional and a difficult thing to do. Well, I want to draw your attention to the fact in this passage because it's so, it's so strikingly different. From chapter 37, I want you to notice that in this case, in chapter 42, Joseph had all the power. And I hope you'll write that down somewhere in your notes. Joseph had all of the power. In chapter 37, when he's 17 and they're throwing, me in the, throwing him in the pit out of their hatred and ripping the coat and selling him to the Ishmaelites and leaving him for dead. You know how much, Joseph, uh, how much power Joseph had? None. He has no power at all. But over 20 years, things have changed. And now Joseph has all the power. In fact, verse number six tells us that he is the governor of Egypt. He's the ruler, second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And he it was that sold the food, the grain to the people who came to buy. It was Joseph who decided whether you got food or not. And the famine was throughout the land and it was throughout even reaching up into Canaan and people were coming from all over because they were hungry to buy food which had been planned for and provided for by Joseph and his plan. And he's the one that decides whether you get food or not. And I have to tell you, I'm absolutely convinced that Joseph knew that one day this exact moment would happen. All of his brothers on their their faces bowing before him. Remember chapter 37, he had dreamed about it. He told them, I dreamed that you were all bowing down to me. And remember, Joseph is the interpreter of dreams. He interpreted the dream of the baker. He interpreted the dream of the the butler. He interpreted the dream of Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to him, I've heard of you. I heard you can interpret dreams. He understood dreams. And I'm convinced that for 20 years, he didn't know how, he didn't know when, and he didn't know why, but he knew That this dream would come to pass and suddenly on this day it has. These brothers have lost all of their power and Joseph holds all the cards. He's got the power. Now listen to me. In exactly the same way, when someone, when some person sins against us, their sin against us empowers us. And it empowers us because their sin or their offense creates a debt whereby they owe us for having wronged us and we hold that debt. And the debt holder possesses power. When someone sins against us, they hurt us, we have the power to withhold. Things from them. We might say, I'm not talking to you. I'm mad at you. You wronged me. You did that thing. You said that thing. You you violated me in that particular way. You lied to me, whatever. And I'm mad. I have power to withhold my words. I'm not talking to you. I have power to withhold my fellowship or withhold my friendship. I'm going to hold that power. I'm going to exercise that power and withhold some things from you. It empowers us to attack them back. We say things like, you cross me, I cross you. You hit me, I hit back harder. You wrong me, I'll wrong you. You wrong me once, shame on you, but I'll get you back. That's my power. I'll respond to you in the same way that you treated me. I'm exercising my power to do it. When someone wrongs us, we have the power to pile on the guilt. We can heap shame on them. We can constantly bring up what they've done. We can remind them of their failure. And by doing so, we're exercising power over them by piling onto them guilt or shame. We exercise power by remaining angry for days or weeks or months or years or sometimes decades. I'm mad. I'll be bad tomorrow. I'll be mad in 10 years. It is my power over you. I'm angry with you. When someone sins against us, their sin creates a debt in the relationship which then empowers the offended person. Joseph was empowered. He had all the power. Now think about it. What might Joseph have done in this case. His brothers show up. He has all the power. What might he have done? Well, let me tell you the first thing he might have done. He might have taken vengeance on them. He certainly could have. He was in a position to do it. He could have said to them, sell you food? Are you kidding me? You're dead, man. I've sworn for 20 years. If I ever saw your face again, you were going to die. He had the power to have had their heads lopped off their shoulders. He could have called Potiphar, remember, the captain of the guard, maybe the captain of the executioners. He could have said, bring your executioners, take these ten men out. I want them executed. He might have taken vengeance on them. He didn't. Perhaps he didn't because in his morning devotion that day, maybe he had read Romans 12 and 19. Do you think maybe he had read Romans 12 and 19? he didn't read it. But maybe the Spirit of the Lord impressed this upon him. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. He might have taken vengeance. Secondly, he might have refused to sell them grain. He could have just done that. Seriously. And wouldn't that have been, from our perspective, reasonable? He could have said, Sell you grain? Are you kidding me? These ten hungry men, back home they've got hungry wives and hungry children. He could have said to them, sorry, you're on your own. You're the one that sold me into slavery. Tricks on you. You you have to go find food somewhere else. He could have just absolutely done them no harm but done them no good. But maybe he had read Matthew 5.44 where Jesus says, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. He could have simply refused to sell them grain. Now the third thing that he might have done is that he might have kept it purely transactional. That is, he wasn't going to harm them. He wasn't wasn't against them. He could have said, look, I'll sell you grain. I don't want your wives and your kids going hungry. I don't want you going hungry. Here, you give me your money. You can have some grain, but it's purely transactional. I have no desire for a relationship with you. We're done. You, you just get on with your life. We're done. Except maybe the Spirit of the Lord impressed upon him before Jesus ever said it, Matthew 5, 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember there your brother has something against you, leave your gift and be proactive and being restored to your brother. Joseph could have chosen any of those actions, but he didn't. He took all of his power, and he used his power for forgiveness rather than for harm. Now hear your pastor this morning. When someone offends you, you have the same kind of power. Now, maybe you don't have the ability to uh, feed them or not, but you hold the power that Joseph had over that person who has offended you. You can can reject them. You can be angry with them. You can retaliate against them. you, You can harbor anger against them. You can withhold good things from them. You can do any of those things that Joseph could do. But when you and I take that power... And choose rather to forgive, that is to give away our power, listen carefully, to give away our power to retaliate, to release them from our power to hold it against them, and we forgive them for what they've done. Do you know that in doing so, we resemble our Heavenly Father who has done that kind of gracious act upon us? In fact, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, When he's talking about forgiving those who uh, are your enemies, loving your enemies, doing good to them, forgiving those who have wronged you, he says, when you do this, why should you do it? So that you will be the sons of God, so that you'll look like your father. Because if you're only good to those who are good to you, then Jesus says, what good is that? But if you're my son, my daughter, then you should forgive your enemies. So Joseph had power, and he used his power to pursue forgiveness. Now there's something else about Joseph's interactions with his brothers that I think uh, is illustrative. And I want you to jot this down, then we'll talk about it. But I see in this passage uh, the lesson that we must forgive by faith before we can forgive to their face. And this is especially true when when the, um, the sins against us are grave sins, serious sins. That we must forgive by faith before we can forgive to their face. In his biography of Joseph, John Lennox writes this. He says, forgiveness appears to have at least two aspects. First, the inner life of the injured party. That is an inward letting go. And then secondly, the outward relationship of the injured party to the one who has committed the offense. That's an outward letting go where the offender is explicitly promised, pardoned, explicitly pardoned. What Lennox says is, is that if I'm going to outwardly, explicitly pardon a person for what they've done to me, there needs to be a work of grace that's happening in my heart in the first place. And I believe that Jesus taught us what that looks like. Let me read to you from the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus told us what this inward forgiveness looks like. Listen to it. Mark chapter number 11 and verse 25. Jesus said, when you stand praying, that is when you come to the temple, or when we, let's apply it, when we come to worship, it says, when you come before me, when you come to worship, forgive if you have anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive, your, forgive you of your trespasses. But if you do not forgive them, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And here's what Jesus says. He says, when you come before me and there's someone in your life that you need to forgive and you're saying, oh God, would you be merciful to me? God, would you just help me to walk in, in fellowship with you? And Lord, I've stumbled here. Please forgive me for that. And, He says that the Lord is going to say, hey, okay, but let's talk about, I want you to forgive them as well. So let's not deal with this until you deal with that. There's no indication in Mark chapter 11 that the person who has offended that Christian coming before the Lord has repented. He doesn't say if they've asked you to forgive them, if they've changed their behavior, if they've repented of their sins. He just simply says, when you come to me and you need to forgive somebody, irregardless of what they do or don't do, just forgive them. The passage doesn't even indicate the fact that they're still living. Maybe they're not living, and it's impossible that they would ever forgive. But Jesus just says, look, when you come to me, I, I want you to forgive. In your heart, I want you to forgive. Now here's the thing, that kind of inward, that, that by faith heart forgiveness has to happen before we can forgive someone to their face. And it just seems apparent to me from Genesis chapter 42 that Joseph had already done this. He had already forgiven his brothers in his heart before that day when they showed up. And in fact, it was his inner By faith, forgiveness of them that paved the way. It was the prerequisite that that paved the way for the ultimate pardoning and the glorious reunion that was surely going to take place. So I have to forgive by faith before I can forgive to their face. Now the last thing I want you to see in Genesis chapter 42 and and following is that while we are required, we are commanded to forgive, our offenders, whether they ask for it or not, we ought to have a spirit of forgiveness. We must also understand that repentance is required before there can be reconciliation. Okay? I forgive in my heart. That's what I'm commanded to do. But that doesn't mean that anything can be reconciled, that there's any hope of restoring a relationship because required for that reconciliation is that there must be Repentance. I would say it to you this strongly reconciliation is impossible. True reconciliation is impossible without repentance. Uh, Genesis 42, that we read, verses 5 through 8, records this arrival of the brothers of Joseph when they arrived in Egypt. Chapter 45 records their reconciliation. Turn over to chapter 45. Look at verse number uh, three. Genesis 45, verse three says, And Joseph said unto his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father yet alive? His brothers could not answer him, for they were troubled in his presence. And Joseph said to his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near to him. And he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, Look at verse number 14, chapter 45, verse 14. He fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. So you have their arrival in chapter 42. You have the reconciliation in chapter 45. And what happens in between, what happens in chapter 42, 43, 44 is a beautiful demonstration of how we get from forgiveness to, in, in uh, many cases, and we hope for, reconciliation. Now, I'd love to take the time to work through all the events of chapters 42, 43, and 44. I don't have time. We're going to baptize, and you would tell me to drink my coffee by myself because you'd slip out before we before we got all that done. But I do want to just give you the highlights of of what happens in these intervening chapters. You saw in chapter number 42, verse eight, where Joseph knows his brothers, but they don't know him. They don't recognize him, and so he's talking to them in a way they won't recognize his voice. He's speaking harshly to them. Where did you come from? He asks them. Where'd you come from? They said, we've come from Canaan to buy food. Listen to his response in verse number nine. Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed, and he said to them, you are spies, You've come to check out the nakedness of the land. You're, you've come to spy out the land of Egypt. They reply in verse number 10, No, my Lord, no, no, we're not spies, but we have come to buy food. Verse 11, we are all one man's sons. This is an attempt, listen carefully, for them to convince this Egyptian governor that they're brothers. We're not spies, we're not a platoon, we're brothers. We all have the same father. And notice what they say to him in verse number 11. Your servants are one man's sons. We are true men. You know what it means? We're honest men. We're good guys. We're good men. We're not spies. We've just come as honest servants of yours, good men, to buy some food. And Joseph wanted to test that theory. Have these 10 brothers really changed? Or are they the same 10 with the same vile desires and the same evil intent as they had 20 years ago when they totally sold him out? Or had they really changed? And so chapters 42, 43, 44 record a series of events all orchestrated by Joseph in order to to tell whether or not these brothers of his had really changed. And you, you know some of the things that happen. He sends them back to Canaan with their, their food that they've bought, but before they leave, he takes all of their money, their purchase money, he puts it back in their sacks, hides it in their travel bags, and now they're traveling home. They open their travel sacks, and all their money's there. Now they've got the food and their money like they stole the food. And they're like, oh, no, how did this happen? And they slink on home and tell their father, what happened. He also demands, you know this, right, that he demands to see Benjamin, his younger brother, his full brother, the son of his mother, Rachel. He demands to see Benjamin. You bring Benjamin to me. Don't you come back down here unless you bring your younger son to me. And so they finally convince Jacob to let Benjamin go with them on their second trip to buy more food. They bring Benjamin. He sends them home the second time with their money again snuck in their travel bags. But he does a second thing. He takes his own silver goblet, his silver cup, and he puts it in Benjamin's sack. He ties it up, and then he sends them home. And they get no more than a little way down the road. Listen carefully. And Joseph sends his soldiers, go track them down, go get them, because one of them has stolen my cup. Joseph put it in there. One of them has stolen my cup. So the soldier comes. And, they, and the soldier says, one of you stolen the governor's cup. Why would you do it? And they're all like, no, oh, my Lord, no. We would never do that. And he says, well, let me search your travel bags then. And, and if it's found in one of your travel bags, whoever has it will be my servant, be the servant of Egypt, and the rest of you can go home. And so they go ahead. We don't have it. And they start with the oldest, and they go down to the youngest. And when they open, if you all tracking with me, say amen. They open the sack of Benjamin. There's that silver muck silver cup. And all the brothers are like, oh no, how did that happen? We know Benjamin wouldn't do that. And, and the servant says, go, all of you go home, but this one is going back to Egypt with me. And they're like, no, we can't leave him. We're not going to leave him. And so they all, look at it. The Bible says that they all come back down. Chapter number 44. They all come back down with Benjamin. Look at chapter 44 and verse number um, 16, 17. Well, actually, verse 13. They rent their clothes. They, they, they uh, laid their donkeys and they returned to the city. Judah and his brothers came with Benjamin into Joseph's house. And Joseph says, I can't believe it. I've been good to you. I've given you food. And, and one of you stole my cup. I can't believe it. But I'll tell you, the rest of you go home. And Benjamin is going to stay with me as my slave. If you all are listening, say Amen. Do you see what Joseph just did? He created the perfect scenario where he gave his ten brothers the opportunity to do to Benjamin exactly what they had done to him. You're going to sell Benjamin out? You're going to go home safely and leave your brother to be a slave in Egypt like you did to Joseph? And beginning in chapter 44, verse number 18 the text records this beautiful speech by Judah, one of the brothers, in which Judah says, oh my Lord, don't keep our brother. We love our brother and our father loves his son and we promised that we would keep him safe and we can't leave him here. He goes through this beautiful speech about why he needs to rescue uh, Benjamin. And when you come down to chapter number forty. Verse number 33, he says, Now therefore, Judah speaking, I pray thee, let me abide instead of Benjamin. I will be your slave and let him go free. I will take his place. By the way, just as an aside, this is Judah, the father of the tribe of Judah. And one day, a great king called the lion, I'm going to preach in a minute, the lion of the tribe of Judah would come and say to his father, let them go free and I will take his place. Praise God for the lion of the tribe of Judah. (laughs) Judah says, let me stay. Let me stay. I'll be your slave. Now, if you compare what Judah said in chapter 44, verse 33, to what he said in chapter 37, verse 26, 27, when he said of Joseph, what good is it if we leave him in the pit? Let's sell him. He's a different man. And when Joseph hears Judah's speech, and he sees that Judah and his brothers have changed, they are not going to do to Benjamin what they had done to him. He understands that they have, in fact, repented. And it's that repentance that makes their reunion and their reconciliation possible. Now, I just want to say to you that, in the same way that Joseph's brothers had to repent in order to have a relationship with him, I want you to hear me. You have to repent in order to have a relationship with God. You do. God has provided for your forgiveness. The lion of the tribe of Judah has come to take your place and let you go free. Forgiveness is paid for. Forgiveness is available. Forgiveness is yours. But you'll never have it and the resulting relationship with God unless you repent. Unless, like Judah and his brothers, you say, I regret what I've done, and by God's grace, I'm going to turn to Him, and I'm going to leave that life behind, and I am going to trust in Him. You must repent. These men repented of their sin, and because they repented of their sin, chapter 45 records this glorious reunion. Verse 1 of chapter 45 then Joseph could not refrain himself before them all that stood by him. He said, send everyone out of the room. And there was no man with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept aloud. And the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard him weeping. And Joseph said unto his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father yet alive? His brothers were so afraid they couldn't speak to him. Verse number four, he said to them, come near to me. Come near to me. He puts his arms around them. He weeps over them. They weep over him. And these brothers who 20 years ago separated over the, over the offense of the brothers toward Joseph whose lives were broken and devastated and separated and alienated now because he was willing to forgive and they had repented was able to come together and have a glorious reunion. You have been clearly commanded by your God to forgive those who have wronged you. Whether they repent, whether they say they're sorry, whether they're still living, to have a heart of forgiveness because you have been forgiven. And listen to me, if you will forgive them even without their repentance, it will bring you peace. And if you will stop sipping on the cup of poison and set it aside, and say, God, you've forgiven me of so much, I forgive. You'll have peace. No matter what they do. But forgiveness with repentance, when they do, if they do repent, then it allows for this beautiful reconciliation that otherwise would be impossible. Now, that doesn't mean that everything's always going to be like it was. Everything's restored to the way things were. Sometimes that can never happen. But there can be some measure of Reconciliation because forgiveness and repentance equal reconciliation. Don't sip the poison any longer and don't continue to believe the lie that I don't have to forgive. I've earned the right. I've got my power. I'll hold it against them until I die. You have been given the power, but the, the Lord of your salvation says, lay it down. Lay your power down and forgive. And listen, if you've never repented of your sins, and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I hope today will be your day.